Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for the Wilmington, Ohio Church of Christ. We pray that this message will inspire you and help you grow closer to God in your faith. Be sure to stick around after the message to find out more about how you can take your next best step. Enjoy the message. I got to tell you, there are three types of people that I just can't stand. People who can't count and hypocrites. Today, as we look at the passage of Scripture for Jesus having a meal with Pharisee, what he does is he calls them out for being hypocrites. He rebukes them at dinner. Now, as we read through this passage in Luke chapter 11, it starts with verse 37 all the way to the end of the chapter, you're going to hear some of the harshest words Jesus says. He actually says it more harshly in some of the other gospels and at some other times, but it is starting now with a rebuke of the religious leaders of Israel, like the bigwigs, the VIPs, the people that everybody respected and who thought they deserved respect Jesus lays into them. Now, when he rebukes them, and you'll see it's, it does feel kind of harsh, he's doing so from a place of holiness that is calling them to repentance. And he's doing so, he's going he's to mention these words, woe. That's a, a, a clue in, a key word for us to hear, where it's a cry of anguish that judgment is coming. It's a curse that's being laid on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that he, his desire is for them to move out of that curse, move out of that woe, and back into grace. Most of the meals that we've looked at have been where Jesus is building up relationships or breaking down barriers. And in this meal, it seems like he is tearing down relationships and putting up a barrier but he is doing it. Sometimes we need to be shocked out of our system. Listen, if the scripture ever speaks to you in such a way that the Holy Spirit uses it to prick your conscience, to strike something in your heart that resounds true for you, what that means is you still have today to repent and turn back to the Lord. You still have time if the scripture is speaking to you. Here is the meal. Now, Luke, he sets this passage off with um, Jesus went in and then Jesus exited at the very end. So we know it's a, a passage of scripture we can take, take out and just kind of look at it as the story, as the whole. But it's kind of interesting how it fits in if you, if you read before and after later. But here is the passage. Oh, and Jesus lays into these guys. And some of it's kind of funny. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. Now, I, are we seeing a pattern here with Jesus? He'll eat with the people who are far from God, and he'll eat for the people who think they're close with God. He is so interested to be on mission for the Lord, to draw people closer to God, that he'll eat with whoever invites him. Whoever invites Jesus into their lives, Jesus will show up in your life. The Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. This is kind of an interesting phrase that we don't kind of understand unless we are Jewish in the temple era. era. Um, the Pharisees were very concerned about cleanliness, uh, ceremonial cleanliness and ritual purity. And they had, it in their eye, they had it in their mind that if they could be ritually pure, ceremonially clean, and get everybody else to be ceremonially clean, then God would come back, remove the Romans, and reestate reinstate Israel as the nation of God on the earth. 
with an Israeli king and all of this. So they, they really wanted to be ritually pure and ceremonially clean. And so they figured, how can we do this? Well, the temple had washing laws, so uh, specific laws that went along with the temple. Before the priest could make a sacrifice, they had to wash their hands and feet. After the priest made a sacrifice, they had to wash their hands and feet. And so the Pharisees said, well, if we want to be ceremonially clean, let's move those washing ceremonies into our homes. God never told us to do that, but we are going to try to be as, as good as we can. And it involves stuff like um, they would take and make a big show of it to let everybody know that they were doing it, and they would all do it. The Pharisees would, and teach the law, and they would take water, and they would wash from the tips of their fingers to their wrists. And then they would take water and wash from their wrists to the tips of their fingers. They would do these ceremonial washings. They would take their cups, their goblets, and they would pour water over them to wash the outside and make them ceremonially and ritually clean. The, the really good ones, they would do it in between, um, in between parts of the meal. So you can imagine, we're going to bring the silverware out. Well, before we bring the silverware out, let's wash our hands. We put the silverware on the table. And then we're going to bring the meal out. Well, before we bring the meal out, let's wash ceremonially. Um, there was this, this rule that kind of like uh, what there was a certain number value associated with certain clean and unclean items. And so we all start off at an uncleanliness at two, but we can ceremonially wash. But if we touch something that's back at two, we're now unclean again. We're reduced back to number two. So we had to wash to get to number three, wash to get to level number four. It's a lot of washing. And Jesus sits down and he deliberately does not do the ceremonial washings. He deliberately does this so that they would start realizing, well, you'll see. The Lord knew what he was thinking. The Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Jesus is immediately bashing them. What would you do if you were sitting at dinner and the guest of honor began saying, You are foolish? You don't know what you're doing. You are full of greed and wickedness. How would dinner go after this? This has got to be one of the most uncomfortable dinners. I don't believe Jesus stayed for dessert. He says something very interesting here. He's trying to convey and trying to convince them that God is more concerned about their character, who they are in secret, the cleanliness of their heart, than he is about their outward reputation and the cleanliness of their hands. God is more concerned with your character and who you are in secret than he is with what people think about you. And Jesus says, by washing your hands, you're not cleansing the heart, you're missing it. If your heart was really cleansed, if you weren't wicked and greedy, I would see you giving your money to more often to the poor people. That's what he was kind of saying to them. See, the Pharisees were very wealthy and they made a big show of tithing their uh, income to the temple and they made a big show, and then they still had a lot of money left over so that they were very comfortable, but they would ignore people who were helpless and hurting and in discomfort. And Jesus says, if your hearts were really right, you probably would still tithe, but you would also help the people who were helpless and uncomfortable and hurting. One preacher kind of explained it this way. Let's say you have a problem with bad language coming out of your mouth. And you want to stop cussing. 
And the preacher said, here's what it would be like to, you, stop, you want to try to stop cussing by brushing your teeth. Right? Cleaning the outside, hoping the external cleansing would make a difference on the cleansing of the heart where cuss words come from. See, everything that comes out of the mouth, out of a person, comes from their heart, Jesus says. Even when we are baptized, Peter says, this baptism now saves you, not from an outside washing of the body, but from a cleansing of a conscience. Something internal happens. And the Pharisees were so concerned with the external. And so Jesus begins the woe passages. Woe to you Pharisees. Because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God, you should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Imagine going into your cupboards and grabbing out your red crushed pepper and sectioning it into ten parts and taking tenth and bringing it to church as offering. Please don't do that. If you were going to do that, the, the Scripture does give instructions on how to do that. If you want to bring some of the crops that you grow or some of your produce in here and you want to give a tenth to the church, the Old Testament says convert it into coins and then give it. Sometimes during the summer, people do bring in some of their produce and they put it in the atrium. If you need tomatoes or cucumbers or peppers, sometimes it'll be back there. But the Pharisees would do it and they'd make a show about it. Hey, everybody, look at me. I'm tenthing, I'm tithing my mint. Well, they were doing that and not helping the helpless and not loving God. They were so focused on doing the little things that made them look good, they forgot about the big things of God. You know, where Jesus says, all of the law and the prophets hinge on these two commands. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you do these things, all the little things will take care of themselves. And the Pharisees were so focused on the little things, they didn't ever do the big things. They were trying to be clean by following the rules, but no amount of performance and no amount of striving, no amount of obedience to the rules will ever make our hearts clean. It's a dangerous place to be. Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace. They always sought to be honored instead of looking for ways to honor God. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves. Oh, this is the worst. This is what got them the, the worst. So their goal was to be ceremonially clean, ritually pure, and make everybody else ceremonially clean, ritually pure. There's a law in the Old Testament that if you touch a dead body, you're ceremonially unclean for seven days. And you have to do ceremonially washings and rituals to, be, to make yourself clean again. Well, that law also includes that if you stand or step on a grave... You, it's like you touch a dead body. You're ceremonially unclean, ritually unclean for seven days. Well, here the Pharisees are trying to make everybody else ceremonially clean, trying to make themselves ceremonially clean, so much so that they bring the cleanliness rituals from the temple into their homes. And Jesus says, you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look pretty on the outside and you are dead and rotten in the middle. And everything you touch becomes unclean. He blasts them. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, uh, when you say these things, you insult us also. Teachers of the law were hanging out with the Pharisees. Pharisees were hanging out with the teachers of the law. They, were, they did all the same things. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you! 
because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourself will not lift one finger to help them. The teachers of the law would watch the law and they say, we don't want to break this law, so let's set up a rule to help us not break the law, and that becomes our law, and that way we stay a good safe distance. You know what? Let's make a rule to protect ourselves from the rules so we don't break the real rules. If you set up an electric fence and you put up a sign, don't touch this electric fence because the shock will kill you, and then you set up another fence a little bit further away that said this, if you touch this fence, it'll kill you, and you set up another fence a little bit further away and says, if you touch this fence, it'll kill you, but they're not electrified. Well, the first person that touches the fence, they realize, oh, nothing happened. Well, then they touch the next fence. Oh, nothing happened. They made up rules that they couldn't keep that they made everybody else try to keep. Well, eventually the person does touch the electric fence and dies because of the rules that were made up ahead of time. There were rules that just packed onto their shoulders of the people that they couldn't follow, and it weighed them down and weighed them down and weighed them down. And there was no joy in loving the Lord because the rules were too heavy. And they weren't rules that God made. The rules about the washing and the degrees of uncleanliness, that was made up, not by God, but by people trying to protect the rules. Woe to you, because you built tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that have been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for all. Jesus is not saying that they killed the prophets. What he is saying is that they have the same attitude that their ancestors had. Their ancestors, when the prophets came in and said, here's the word of the Lord, here's what we're prophesying about, they didn't want to hear the word of the Lord, so they killed them or attacked them. That same attitude now exists in the teachers of the law who are prepared to kill who the prophets were prophesying about. They were going to kill Jesus. They hated hearing the word of God. They hated seeing the word of God. They hated being in the presence of the word of God. They'd rather be with their rules. Rules you can control. Rules are based on your performance. And you can judge whether you're doing them well or not. And then you can judge others whether they're doing them well or not. Jesus said that the tombs that you built are kind of like monuments to your murderous ancestors more than they are monuments to the prophets because you still don't want to hear the word of God. And the word of God is Jesus. The key to the kingdom is Jesus. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you've taken away the key to knowledge. They said, we don't want to have anything with Jesus, and you better not hang out with Jesus either. Woe to you, experts in law, because you've taken away the key to knowledge. You yourself have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. If the word of God comes, and it, and it pricks your conscience, if the word of God comes, and you're convicted by the Holy Spirit that you need to change that's kind of like Jesus rebuking you like he did with the Pharisees. If this passage of Scripture begins to convict us, what that means is today, as long as it is today, you have enough time to repent and turn back to God. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were given an opportunity. Jesus was warning them, but he also gave them a reality where it wouldn't have to be. There was a chance for them to repent. He said, you know, if your hearts were right, we would see it. You'd be giving to the poor. But instead of 
hearing Jesus' word, taking it in and allowing it to instruct their hearts, giving them transformation. They rejected Jesus' words and looked for ways they could, they could find loopholes to get out of it. The Pharisees were all about that. Love God and love people. And so Jesus says, these are the two laws that all the other laws hinge on. Love God and love your neighbor. And one of the, one of the teacher laws says, yeah, but who really is my neighbor? See, I'm trying to get out of it. If they're not next door, are they really my neighbor? If they're not Jewish, are they really my neighbor? If they're an enemy of God, they're probably not a neighbor, right? And so Jesus tells a story. He says there was a man going down a road, and he was set upon by robbers. They stripped him, they took his money, and they left him for dead, beat him up. And a rabbi and a Levite walked down the side of the road, and they don't stop to help him. But the enemy of the Jewish people, the Samaritans, did stop to help. They, the Samaritan bound his wounds, set him up in a hotel, and paid for him to get well. And Jesus says, who's the neighbor? The teacher's law hated Samaritans. He goes, I guess it's the person that helped. But the Levite and the priest, they were following the law as they understood it. See, if they stopped to help the guy that was almost dead, what if he died? Well, they'd be unclean for seven days. What if the Levite, he was going into the temple to work on, you know, setting up the bread or the table or the, or the candle? What if he, he couldn't go in there because he'd stop and touch a dead man? He couldn't do that. He'd be unclean. Or the rabbi, what if he was going to go teach and he noticed the man wasn't quite dead, but you know, on the scale of whether something is clean or not, that's pretty low on the scale. So if he touched it, then he'd have to do some ceremonial washings. He had to be clean again. Then he couldn't teach and he just kind of wasted his time. So he just kept passing by. You see how if we follow some of the rules that we make up, how we can stop loving people and having compassion for them? We get stuck in this pattern where we're really good at following some of the rules we make. See, I don't know if the Scripture's speaking to you or not today. I think there is some ways that we can apply this to our lives, though. First of all, we want to be rebuked by Jesus when we're on a path of destruction or a path that's going to lead us to death. We need a rebuke from that. Revelation tells us and warns us that in the last days, by the way, we're in the last days, there will be signs that people are on a road to destruction. They will experience death all around them. Revelation speaks of wars and viruses and, and accidents and things bad happening. We're in the last days. And it also says the people did not repent and turn back to God. If God is rebuking or calling us out, we need to repent and turn to him because we still have time. So number one, we need to be rebuked. We want to be rebuked. The scripture, it says, is God-breathed, written by God for rebuking, correcting, teaching, and training. Rebuking just means stop. You're going to get hurt. Change directions. Repent and come back to God. So we need to examine ourselves based on this passage of Scripture to see if we have the attitudes and actions of Jesus or the attitude and actions of the Pharisees. I have two studies I want to mention today done by George Barna. The first was uh, an interview they did, phone interviews they did, with um, several thousand people who called themselves Christians. And they had 20 questions in this survey that the people who called themselves Christians would answer. They were set up 10 questions on the actions and attitudes of Jesus, what, Jesus, what they saw Jesus look like. I'm going to read those questions to let you examine yourselves. And 10 questions, what they saw the actions and attitudes of the Pharisees look like. And what they found was 51% of people who claimed to be Christians fell into the actions and attitudes of the Pharisees based on kind of the description we just read. 
And only 14% of the people surveyed fell into the actions and attitudes of Jesus Christ based on their survey. A lot of times, or sometimes, Christians or people coming to the faith will exit away from Jesus because they see how Christians act and they don't want to be around Christians. Some of the surveyed would have like the attitude of Pharisees but the action of Jesus, and some surveyed would have the actions of Jesus but the attitude of Pharisees. But only 14% of those surveyed looked and sounded and acted like Jesus. Here, here are some of those questions. See, we need to examine ourselves and see if we are like a Pharisee or like Jesus. Here's a question about Jesus. You just examine in your own mind. Don't raise your hand. Uh, number one, and these are Christ-like actions, five of them. I listen to others to learn their story before telling them about my faith. Number two, in recent years, I've influenced multiple people to consider following Christ. Number three, I regularly choose to have meals with people with very different faith or morals from me. Jesus did this. Thus, most studies show that after six months of being a Christian, we stop hanging out with non-Christians like almost completely. This one's real, that one's really hard. Hard for Christians. Number four, I try to discover the needs of non-Christians rather than waiting for them to come to me. Number five, I'm personally spending time with non-believers to help them follow Jesus. These are things Jesus did. Here's his attitudes. I see God-given value in every person regardless of their past or present condition. Pharisees did not do that. They looked at a person's past or they looked at their person's present condition and looked down their nose at them. I believe God is for everyone. Number eight, I see God working in people's lives even when they're not following him. Well, that's true. God sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. He sends sunlight on both the righteous and evil farmers. Number nine, it's more important to help people know God. Excuse me. It's more people to help people know God is for them to make sure, than to make sure that they know they are sinners. It's an interesting one. I feel compassion for people who are not following God and doing immoral things. That, that's a good test. Do we look at people who are far from the Lord or on a path of destruction or on a path towards death because they're sinning and it's destroying their life? Do we look at them and shake our head and tisk? Or do we have compassion and our heart breaks for them and we wish that we could rescue them out of that path? Jesus had compassion on people. I think we ought to test ourselves using this story from Jesus, this narrative that Luke presents to us, this history lesson where Jesus called out the Pharisees. I think we ought to test and make sure we don't have a pharisaical attitude or pharisaical heart. But we act more and more and more like Jesus. And if God is pricking your conscience... If he's convicting you of not acting like Jesus, well, today is the day to repent and turn to him and say, I, I want to be more like Jesus. Help me, Lord, be like, more like Jesus. Send your spirit to help me. You know what God promises? If we ask for help, he will send more of the Holy Spirit to us. Another way we can test, another way we can examine ourselves is based on a survey of 20,000 Americans, some of them Christians, some of them not, and Barna, what he was trying to do was he was trying to determine, is there a path that people follow to come into a healthy relationship with God? And he said he has determined through the survey, 20,000 interviews, that there is a path that people follow regardless uh, in America, regardless of their background, regardless of their socioeconomic status. They follow this path in various degrees toward 
a relationship with God. And I think we ought to look at our own journey to God on this path based on, on here toward God. And here's kind of how it works. This is an examination. And right in the middle is where uh, we become Pharisees if we're not careful. Here's, here's how it works. At first, we're unaware of our sin. About 1% of all the population of America live here based on this 20,000 person survey. Then we become aware of sin. We become aware that things are not right and we're not right. And we become concerned with sin. This is where most Americans, 40% of Americans live here, where they know something is not right, they know they're not right, and they're concerned that things are not right. Now this is good and bad news. The bad news is 40% of America lives being concerned about their sin and knowing they're not right, but they don't do anything about it. They live there and they stay there and they die there. It's good news because 40% of Americans are ripe for the harvest. They're ready for somebody to tell them the good news. They're ready for somebody to intervene and say, we know what's wrong and we know what's right and we can help you get to where you have peace. And we introduce them to Jesus. And we do that by trusting the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And we tell about what a difference Jesus has made in our lives. 40% of the people of America are ready to hear. And then in America, people who are concerned, their next step, if they're moving toward God in America, is they'll confess their sins and accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And then they commit to faith activities reading your Bible, going to Sunday school class, serving and praying. They'll commit to faith activities. And while they're here at this faith activity part, uh, by the way, this is where most Christians stay and they never get beyond this part. The goal is to be in an intimate relationship with God and we stay learning how to do all the rules. Now the rules are important. The things we do for Jesus are important. The goal is to get to intimacy with God, a profound intimacy with God, where he is like our real father who is with us, and we are experiencing his presence, we're experiencing his power in our life, and then we have profound compassion for people where we act like Jesus, we feel bad when they're helpless and we want to go help them. The goal is to get to here. Less than 1% of all Christians ever reach this. Out of 20,000 people, that's a good survey that covers a good span of people. This tells us this is kind of an accurate statement. Less than 1% of Christians ever grow to a profound intimacy with God and a profound compassion for people. And it's because we kind of get stuck here. The rules are, are important. The things we do for faith activities are really important. For example, you can't grow spiritually and get connected with God if you don't have knowledge and you don't have community, and you don't have experience. And we call that Bible and Sunday school or small group, and we call that relationships. Some people, they get involved in church, and uh, if you can imagine like making a stool here, a three-legged stool. Okay, some people get involved in church, and they never read their Bible, but they really like the community, and they really like learning how to pray, and they base it all on experience, and a two-legged stool will fall over. It can't support itself. And other people, they say, well, we just need the Bible. That's all we need. And a one-stick stool means you know a lot about the Bible, but you walk around with a stick. You look uncomfortable. Okay? You can't grow without these three things in place. And people who try to do it with only one or two, 
they, they will not experience growth or they'll have a lot of trouble experiencing growth. But the tools, the, the legs of the stool are not the goal. The goal is not perfect attendance in Sunday school class. The goal is not memorizing the Bible for memorizing the Bible's sake. The goal is not learning how to pray for an hour. The goal is to experience a deep, profound relationship and intimacy with God. That's the seed of the stool that holds it all together. Bible reading, Sunday school class, small groups, service projects, giving, your tithes, giving uh, to the offering, helping out with a food pack, serving, uh, learning how to pray. All those are tools that help us learn who God is. One teacher, he said when he was becoming a Christian, he was reading through the Bible and he came across Joshua chapter 1 verse 8. And he said, Joshua 1 verse 8 says this, it says, keep this book of the law always on your lips, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. And so he said, oh, I know what God's goal for me in my life is to memorize this and obey it. And he was in faith activities level. And while he was in faith activities level, he was memorizing the Bible and he was obeying it. And he started having this holy discontent like, isn't there something more to a relationship, a healthy relationship with a father than just hearing his words and obeying him? Isn't there something more? And he had this holy discontent. Most Christians, if they ever advance to this holy discontent, what they do is they go back and they do more faith activities and they work harder and try harder and strive and it's all about performance. If I could just read more Bible, then my relationship with God is gonna be better. If I can just learn how to pray more and, and I'm gonna, op anytime the church doors open, I'm gonna be there, I'm gonna serve and they stay here and it's this ever rotation. They start getting a little discontent because there's gotta be something more to my relationship with God than just obedience. And they fall back into, I'm gonna try harder. But the holy discontent, there's gotta be something more, should lead to brokenness. Where we surrender our sin and our self and our society and we give ourselves completely to God. We say, God, I, there's gotta be something more. I want a deeper relationship with you and you have convicted me by the Holy Spirit that I need to give my whole self for you. I need to surrender myself to you. I have to give up my security, my rights, my life, whatever I want, and you just take over. When that happens, when that brokenness leads to surrender, it is only then that we move into an intimate, profound, intimate relationship with God. And that profound, intimate relationship with God leads us to have profound compassion for people. This is the American version and the reason why people have so much trouble getting past just faith activities to an actual relationship with God is because surrender is in the wrong place in America. Surrender needs to happen back here when we get concerned with sin. The biblical pattern is when we notice sin, we get convicted of sin, that's where we surrender before we confess our sins to the Lord and ask him to change us and be our savior. Because we're in America, we, we don't do things biblically all the time. Surrenders out here past faith activities that make us feel like we're somebody, make us feel like we're growing. Listen, these will work. The faith activities, if you obey the scripture, your life is gonna get better. Even non-Christians who don't know they're obeying scripture, if they obey, Christ, if they obey scripture, their life is gonna get a little bit better. But it will never give them peace and rest that Jesus promises us. 
because there's no surrender of ourself, there's no surrender of our sin, and there's no surrender of the culture around us. We just keep trying to do things our own way. And this path, this journey that we get to examine ourselves on, it's not like a straight path like I have laid out here. It kind of works in circles. So we're unaware, and then we become aware, but we don't really care. And then we get concerned, but sometimes we're not. And then we realize we need to do something about it. And what happens is this circle, this ever-increasing circle here, we just stay in this spot. We get discontent, so we just try harder. There's no amount of performance that's going to make you more loved by God. There's no amount of performance that's going to give you more forgiveness from God. There's no amount of striving or work hard that will make you clean on the inside. If this is where you are, this is, this is where we get stuck. Jacob and I were talking about this uh, place where we got stuck uh, last week. Uh, Jacob, who preached last week, he did such a great job. Um, it's, always, it's always a terrible thing when the senior minister is jealous of the associate minister for preaching so well, and he prays like, oh, God, just let him trip as he goes up the steps. It's always... This is always a bad place to be. Or maybe just, you know, don't have such a good sermon because we'll, we'll get better next week when I'm preaching again. And he just, he just does such a good job. Didn't he do a good job? Okay. Yeah. 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 Jealousy all over. Jealousy all over. Well, Jacob and I were talking, and he said, he said something profound again. He said, as a Christian, we get caught here as a Pharisee because we try really hard at these faith activities, and then we look around to see who's not doing the faith activities like we're doing them. See, the Pharisees were good at following the rules. I'm good at reading my Bible. And I get to look. Who's not good at reading their Bible? Our new app takes attendance when we're in Sunday school class. And I get to look. Who's not in Sunday school class? You see, all of a sudden, trying harder to do faith activities is dangerous because it may lead us to become a Pharisee or a teacher of the law where the idea is these faith activities are supposed to be tools that lead us to intimacy with God. And when we see people who are far from God, we say, oh, I want to help you get there the best I can. Here's one tool that maybe we can use to get closer to God. I love this tool. I've never used this tool until just this past week when I was studying this. I'm, I'm struggling. I'm trying to grow to hear. Okay? I'm pretty good at some of these things. Trying to grow here. One, one author, he said, when he reads scripture, you remember it's a tool to get closer to God. He likes to meditate on the scripture and he says, I try to imagine what God the Father, as the Father, would teach me this, what God the Son, as the Son, would teach me in this, and how he would teach me, and how the Holy Spirit. And what he was saying, uh, not only the practice, pretty neat, but he, what he was saying is, we. Our salvation is not based on our emotions or our feelings. Our emotions and feelings can, be, um, can lie to us. So our salvation is based on knowledge that God sent his son for us, that Jesus rose from the dead. Our salvation is based on an event in history where God's grace is extended to us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But we shouldn't get our emotions and feelings completely out of the picture God still wants to have emotions and feelings in our faith, and he wants us to use them in a way that allows us to grow in intimacy with the Father. That preacher who read Joshua 
He said, man, I, I know that my goal is just to memorize and obey. He ended up reading Jeremiah 9 after he got discontent, holy discontentment. He said, there's got to be something more. In Jeremiah 9, it says this, let not the wise boast of their wisdom. Oh, I'm really good at the Bible knowledge stuff. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength. Are you healthy right now? Or the rich boast in their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have an understanding and they know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight. And the guy said, oh, it was, all, it was like a light bulb went off, that he got to move out of performance mode into relationship mode. He moved out of being a Pharisee and a teacher of the law into an intimate relationship with the Father, and then he had a profound compassion for people. And he said, I got to help people know God. And so one author, he says, take your passage of scripture and as you read it, meditate on it. Meditate means think about it. Imagine God the Father. What would a healthy relationship with a good daddy look like who was teaching you the scripture? Now, if you didn't have a good father, it may be very difficult for you to imagine what a good father would look like, but you have to use your imagination double time. And then he said he would take the same passage in the same sitting while he was developing this relationship with God. How would Jesus the Son, who is the King of the universe and my brother, come in and walk beside me through this passage of Scripture? Doesn't Jesus say he will always be with us? He's with us in this life. He's with us at death so we don't experience death. And he's with us on the other side of death. He's with us for all time. How would Jesus teach me this passage? Or the Holy Spirit, he ends with, how would the Holy Spirit, who is the helper and the reminder and the convictor of sin, how would he teach me this passage? He's using his imagination to grow in his relationship. He's using his emotions and his feelings to help grow his relationship. Knowing that it's knowledge based on his confession of sin and his salvation, Lord, is based on what Jesus did for him, not what he does, that gets to this. We hope you have enjoyed this message. If you need someone to pray with you, talk to, or maybe you just want more information about our church, be sure to fill out a Connect card so we can reach out and help you take your next best step. Thanks again for joining, and we will see you back here next time.